the Worldwide Church, this season that happens on Resurrection Sunday till Pentecost Sunday is called Eastertide, and it's a time of celebration, celebrating that Jesus is risen. And as part of this celebration, Eastertide kind of invites us to say, you know, what does it mean that Jesus is resurrected? What does new life in Christ look like? And so that question has kind of led us to our, our current series on the book of James, because Asking what does new life in Christ or what does life in Christ look like is what James attempts to answer. But it's also a question I believe that all of us need to ask every single day of our life. You know, what does life in Christ look like for me? And so James in his epistle is going to answer it by saying simply living out your faith. What does new life in Christ look like? Let's look at every aspect of your life, and is it surrendered to Jesus, and is it for the kingdom? Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn me to James chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 9 to 11, um, James 1, 9 to 11. Starting at verse 9, we'll also have it up front in the NIV, so you can follow there as well. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you this morning. We celebrate that you are indeed the God who meets us where we are. We thank you that no matter how far away we feel from you, no matter how distant our thoughts are this morning, that you are meeting us there. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence in our lives. We thank you for you making home and abiding inside of those of us who believe. We thank you for you leading and guiding us. We pray this morning now as we go to your scriptures, as we've been worshiping this morning, that you lead us to the Father. Lord Jesus, our Christ, we thank you so much that you're not only the God who meets us, but you're the God who holds us. You're the God who carries us. You're the God who pushes us through and pushes us forward. So, Lord, we thank you that now as we think about these things, as we think about what does new life in Christ look like in regards to wealth or finances or resources, help us to surrender them to you as well. Lord Jesus, our Christ, we thank you that you taught us to seek first the kingdom. And we pray that all that we are, all that we have, all that we can give is truly for you and your glory, for you and your kingdom, for you and for on earth as it is in heaven, in your Father's kingdom, our Father's kingdom, and God's will be done. In your holy and precious name, amen. Again, as we've been going through the book of James, he said that the purpose of James is really to teach how faith is supposed to impact your life. That faith isn't just supposed to be something we know, right, or something we hold on to in our hearts, but something we actually actively live, live out in our everyday scenes. Missiologist and scholar Kay Ellis says, James sounds like the Sermon on the Mount, and there's a reason for that. She, she, she implores us to remember that James is the brother of Jesus. And, and even though we don't think that James fully believed who Jesus was until after the resurrection, you can see the life of Jesus and his impact on James. So as James is writing this, it's good to read it in light of the Sermon on the Mount because they're going to mirror each other. And this is actually one of those passages that's easy to see. But what I love about K.A. Ellis is that she says not only does James sound like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, but we have to remember that he writes this letter not just as simple uh, a list of do's and don'ts, right? Or a list of, of what you're supposed to be and and then the, this is the bad things. But what James is content is to write to these believers, right? He's having a family meeting, and he's writing to the believers to simply say, this is what people who follow Jesus look like. This is what our beliefs look like. This is how it forms our character. This is how it forms our person. This is how it forms our worship. This is what home in Christ looks like. And that's what James is starting to get at, right? That your faith must not only be what you believe, but it has to show up in your life. It has to show up in your practice. Last week, we began by looking at the first eight verses of James, and we said that the, the, the key that James wants us to understand is that this life is hard. 
This life is going to be very hard. And for some of us, it's going to get even harder. This world is dark. This world is broken. This world is not as it should be. But James reminds us that no matter what the world throws at us, God is with us. God is on our side. God is working in us. God is working through us. God is still supreme and sovereign and Lord. And this God who's supreme and sovereign and Lord says, yes, the world is hard, but I need you to persevere. Yes, things aren't as it should be, but I need you to keep holding on to me. So James then says, we need to persevere in faith. And by persevering in faith, we can be a light to our world. And part of that perseverance in faith is taking things to God in prayer. And James says, you need to have assurance that if you're praying for God in his kingdom, God will answer. And that's key, right? Because a lot of times we think when we pray for stuff, we don't get the answer. No, no, James says, when you pray, not for you, but for God and his kingdom, God will answer. And then James spends a little time talking about a big thing that all of us in the faith struggle with, and that's doubt. And James says, doubt is not the opposite of our faith. But if we're willing to trust God with our doubts, if we're willing to surrender our doubts to God, if we're willing to say, God, I trust you, that God will not only help us overcome those doubts, but God could even use those doubts to strengthen our faith. And then he jumps, right? So if you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does the same thing. He'll be talking about one thing, and then he just jumps. So James goes from trust God. Trust God always. Life is hard. Trust God. With your doubts, trust God. Life is broken and everything's hard and trust God. But now I want to talk about money. Now, if you made a list of 100 things that pastors love to talk about, money's probably not on it, right? Like it's super uncomfortable when you talk about money. But then you realize that Jesus probably talked about money just about more about money than just about anything else. And I think the reason is because it tends to be a better God to us, we think, than our God. It tends to be what we put our head down and work for more than our God. We will go for education. We will go for training. We will go for job development. We will go for all these things and not even spend an inkling of that same time on our faith. Right? And, and James seems to realize the same thing that Jesus seems to teach is that money can very easily become our God. And status can very easily become our God. And what we look like, what people think of us can clearly become our God. And so James then moves from trust God always, trust God if it's hard, trust God when you don't believe, trust God in doubt, to like, we need to talk about money. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. But what's interesting is that James doesn't just jump here. It's only three verses, 9, 10, and 11. But what I love about these three verses is they're founded on two principal passages. The first one is Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is uh, N.T. Wright, who's a scholar, says this is one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. So put that down for your homework. Read Isaiah 40 tonight. It's really, really good. And one of the reasons Isaiah 40 is so instrumental is that it's written to Israel in their time of captivity. And the biblical writers seem to have this thing, right, where they believe that man-made borders are not what your country is. They seem to think that, like, saying I'm an American doesn't matter saying I belong to God, I'm a Christian. They seem to think that your brother and sister don't just live in Humblestown or, or Harrisburg or, or Dillsburg, but they also live in places like Sarajevo or, and places like Kinshasa and places like Buenos Aires, right? It seems to believe that these biblical writers think that we are all children of exile. That this earth, this America is not our home. This is not where we belong. And they kind of zero in on that. And in Isaiah 40, they really were in exile. And you have to take a step back to realize what kind of exile they were in. This wasn't just some thought exercise, right? 
They had lost their land because of, of their disobedience to God. They had lost their inheritance of the promised land. They had seen their people killed and murdered and oppressed. They had seen the, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians come and take them off into captivity. They had lost everything. Life was hard. But in Isaiah 40, God shows up and says, no, 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 I'm still with you. You haven't been faithful to me, but I'm going to be faithful to you. I know things aren't as it should be, but I'm going to carry you through. Isaiah 40 is so critical that it's one of the few chapters in the Old Testament that's quoted by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So to say that every Hebrew girl and boy would have grown up with some teaching of Isaiah 40 would not be an understatement. And they all highlight all these different things. But one of the things I love about Isaiah 40, which you'll read later today for your homework, is that God shows up. That even when things are hard, God is trying to say, I will be there. I will be by your side. In verse 28 of Isaiah 40, he says it like this. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. I want you to hear that this morning. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, except the one from Philadelphia. They don't fly nowhere. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. It's cool. You won your Super Bowl. You got a whole lifetime. Heaven's coming soon. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Isaiah writes this to a people in exile to remind them that God is there to comfort them, that God is there to strengthen them, that what this world defines as lowly, as humble, as poor, God exalts because he says, I'm with you, I see you, and I will lift you up. You can trust me, not Jalen Hurts. But then, oh, the Eagles fans, that's just the first one. We got more for y'all. But the key thing in Isaiah 40 that James pulls out isn't just a reminder that God's going to strengthen us and God's going to fly with us and God's going to lift us up and that the world, how it defines us, isn't how we need to be defined. The key thing he's going to hold on to actually happens in verses 6 to 8 where it says, a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers in the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them like the eagle, dead. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. And that's what James wants us to hold on to. That's the first foundational passage that, listen, things are going to come and go. People are going to come and go. Life is going to be hard. It's going to be rough. God is with you, yes. But I want you to hold on to this, that God is God. God is supreme. God is sovereign. God and his word will endure forever. Your situation will not be forever. Your struggle will not be forever. Your exile will not be forever. Only thing that's forever is God and his word. And that's just the foundational of these three verses. Then he's also going to pull from his brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to go to Matthew chapter 6. Now, Matthew chapter 6 is in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So in the middle of it, that's the chapter where Jesus says, I want y'all, if you follow me, to be faithful to God. But remember the poor. I want y'all to give. 
but not like the world gives. I want you to do it humbly. I want y'all to pray, but not as the world prays. I want y'all to do it humbly. I want y'all to, to, to fast, but not as the world fasts. I want y'all to do it humbly because I want you to be genuine when you serve me and not a hypocrite. And that's the same chapter where Jesus says, listen, I need to teach y'all how to pray. And instead of us getting the lessons of how to pray, we're like, no, 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 this is the Lord's prayer. This is the only way we'll pray, right? But he's just saying that, like, when you pray, remember that God is sovereign, God is supreme, God is amazing, right? But also remember that God is holy, hallowed be thy name. Remember that God provides for you. He gives you your daily bread. He gives you all that you need. Remember what our father David says, the Lord is my shepherd. There's nothing I shall lack. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That God who's supreme and sovereign is the God who provides for you in every situation. And then he ends that with what? Saying, but also remember that supreme, sovereign God who provides is the God who forgives. The God who forgives all sins and the God who calls you to forgive as he forgave. Because if God forgives you and you don't forgive, do you belong to God? And Jesus continues through Matthew 6, and he says again, I want you to serve God and not money. We read it in our scripture earlier from the ease, right? And he has this beautiful line where he says, where your treasure, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And we have to understand that this biblical idea of heart wasn't just my emotions and my feelings, right? The biblical idea of heart was the essence of who you are, meaning mind, body, soul, spirit, Gifts, skills, abilities, resources, everything that I am, where my heart is, there my treasure will be also. And then he says it plainly, right? You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and money. If money is first to you, God will always not matter. Not even second, God will not matter. If all you live for is money, God will not matter. And then he ends that great chapter 6 by saying what? I need you to trust God. I need you to work not for money, but to seek God and his kingdom. I need you not to worry. God will provide. But are you living to seek his kingdom? So Isaiah and Jesus himself helps us understand James 1, 9, 11, because James wants us to know that things come and fade. People come and fade. Wealth comes and fades. But God and his word goes on forever. And Jesus wants to know, don't worry, God's got you. Don't worry, God will provide. But what you ought to be doing is seeking first God's kingdom. And it's that basis that forms the foundation for how we are to interpret and walk through James 1, 9 to 11. He starts off with a call. And the call simply goes like this in verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. He's talking to believers. Again, this is a family meeting. James isn't concerned about what's happening out in the world. He's talking to his family right now. And he says, believers, again, last week we learned the word Adelphoi, which is brethren, right? Which is this idea that we belong to God and each other. It's not just a simple sisters and brothers in Christ. It's saying we are the family of Christ together. Meaning that if we have a brother or sister who's hurting in Mogadishu, who's hurting in Kiev, who's hurting in Eritrea, who's hurting in Harrisburg, then we are hurting too. It means that the blood that flowed on Calvary's tree, by faith in Jesus' name, we belong more to the body of Christ than even to our own family members. 
right? Like that's what he's saying here when he says believers, when he says Adelphoi, he's saying all of us who belong to God and each other. That's who he's greeting. And then he says, I know this world might call you low. This world might have brought you down. This world might have humbled you. This world might have depressed you. This world might be dark and you can't see past the dark and you're only in the darkness. But I want you to remember not just your situation, but that God has already met you where you are. I want you to remember, believers, that you ought to take pride in your high position, meaning that if you're low, it's not just God's going to go and pick you up. It's that you might be low, but to God, you're already in a high position. This world might call you poor, but to God, you're the son and daughter of a king. This world might call you down and broken, but to God, you're a resurrected child who will be healed and bring healing. Take pride in your high position. It is only God who exalts. So even if the world has got you down, never forget you belong to the God of this universe. Never forget you belong to the God of this world. Never forget that in Christ Jesus, you're in the ultimate high position that you get to stand before the Father as God's child. Believers in humble circumstances take pride in your high position. Matthew Henry says it like this. We take pride because God has exalted us, those who are rich in faith are heirs to the kingdom. No matter what you feel this morning, no matter what situation you're in this morning, no matter how low or how high you feel, you belong to God. Your faith makes you the heirs of the kingdom. No matter, we have these flags all around to show where all the places we are, all the places we're from, right? These are just temporary existences. Our citizenship truly belongs in heaven. And James wants us to know that no matter how low it is in this world, no matter how poor we are, no matter how much suffering we go through, God looks at us in extremely high possession. And then he wants to talk about the rich. And in a passage that makes some of us squirm a little bit, or maybe makes some of us, you know, think about like, wow, this seems a little harsh. And it is. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fail and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. What's interesting is that verse 9 is addressing the brethren, right? The brothers and sisters who belong to God and each other. In verse 9 or 10 and 11, he goes to the rich. So you have two options here, I think. You could think he's either talking about rich Christians because it's still talking about the brethren, right? Or you can go to this idea that he's talking and leaning on not only Isaiah 40, but also Matthew 6. Meaning that it doesn't matter if you're a rich Christian or not, if you are rich by this world's standards, God is going to hold you to a higher standard. And this standard wants you to be reminded that you believers, especially you believers, you my family, trust God, the giver, and not the gifts. Trust God, the blesser, and not the blessings. Because why? Because everything that you hold on to, everything you consider wealth, whether it's your bank account or your family, right? Whether it's your relationship or your job, whether it's your health, right, or, or your security, all of that can quickly pass away. In the blink of an eye, wealth fades like flowers. That's what we learned from Isaiah 40. 
But then, and I think this is probably the key of the verse, at the very end of the passage, he says, not just the riches fade, but the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. And that's interesting, because if we contrast that with what Jesus says in Matthew 6, James is just building off of that. In Matthew 6, don't worry, trust God. Don't worry, God provides. Don't worry, seek God's kingdom first. In James 1, don't worry, trust God. Don't worry, God will provide. If you live for yourself, if you live for your wealth, you will fade away. And that's what James is trying to drive home, that if your business is about your bank account, if your business is about your status, if your business is about your education, if your business is about me and mine, if your business is about exalting yourself, you will fade away. Are you seeking first the kingdom of God? Is your heart, right, the essence of who you are, your gifts, your skills, your abilities, your resources, your hopes, your dreams, is the essence of who you are, working and living to seek first God's kingdom or to build your own. Because if you're seeking first God's kingdom, you will live forever. But if you're working to build your own, it will soon pass by. Now, I want to do talk a little bit about wealth because I think there's some things that we have to hold on to as we think about wealth. The first one is that wealth is relative. It's very, very relative, right? One of my favorite cultural critics says it like this, right? Professional athletes are rich. The people who sign their checks are wealthy. And that's relative. But here's the thing, though. We live in a world that Micah complained about. We live in a world that Jesus saw. We live in a world that's seen Egyptian empires and Assyrian empires and Babylonian empires and Greco-Roman empires and British empires and Ottoman empires and now the American empire. And in each of these worldly empires, guess what? The rich have gotten richer and the poor have gotten poorer. And what's even more harrowing, what's even more maddening is that it gets worse in times of trouble. Maybe you can make your first billion and be a healthy, perfect person. But it's been documented by people of every political ilk. It's been documented by people on every continent that to be a billionaire upon billionaire, you have to exploit people. You have to take advantage of the poor. And that should terrify us because there's a verse in Proverbs that says this, in Proverbs 14:31, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy and the poor honors their God. I want to go over a couple of stats about how the rich are getting richer on our watch, and especially during COVID. Get ready to be depressed, but it's okay. We'll pick you up at the end. 2,755 billionaires, so like Messiah College, right, the student population, have seen their fortunes grow more during COVID-19 than in the last 14 years before that combined. And that's the biggest increase they've seen since they started keeping records. During COVID-19, while people are dying from not having access to, to health care or vaccines, while people are dying and suffering and losing jobs, during COVID-19, we've seen a new billionaire created every 26 hours. 
the wealth of the 10 richest men in the world has doubled during COVID-19, while the incomes of the bottom 99%, hi, y'all, that's us. The wealth of the 10 richest men has doubled while the income to the bottom 99% of all humanity has worsened during COVID-19. I got more, don't worry. Since 1995, this top 1% have captured not twice, not five times, not 10 times, 20 times more global wealth than the bottom half of all humanity. It's impossible to be this rich and not exploit the poor. Micah saw this in Israel and Judah, right? Prophets have seen it through the Ottoman Empire, the Greco-Roman Empire, the British Empire, now this American Empire. They've seen it, and it's impossible to be this rich and not exploit the poor. And we see how we have all these resources, and it's the poor that are suffering. I got more for you. You ready for this one? Looking at food and water, right? And this is going to be harrowing. Actually, I want to pause on that. Yesterday, um, I took my kids to a toy store, which is a fascinating thing, right? There's this thing called social media, and they see their friends doing stuff. And, and Titus, who I love, took his boy to a toy store. And my daughter saw it, and like, we need to go to a toy store. And I was like, do we, do we need to go to a toy store? Is this what we need to do? And then there's something that's really interesting about kids, especially 10 and under, right? They're in this generation now where everything's not only electronic, but everything's on the screen even toys, right? There's this generation now where they watch, millions of them, they watch other kids open toys. Like, if you don't believe me, just Google Ryan's toy review. You'll be shocked, right? Like, millions of kids watch this one kid open toys. Like, they're just not used to hands-on. So I was like, this is going to be an interesting social experiment. I hope my wallet survives this, right? But we're going to go to a toy store that's not predicated on electronics. That's just going to be toys, right? And it was fun walking in because it was just like, this is amazing. You can touch them. You can ask questions and play with them, right? And we, we had fun. It was a good time. But after I paid for the toys, I was driving back, and I was thinking to myself, this wasn't even that big of a deal. You know, we just, you know, like, we didn't spend that much money. You know, like, my wife would not like that very much. You know, it was like, we were, we were good. But I thought about what little we did spend. And that's what I mean by wealth is relative. So I started with the billionaires because none of us can relate to that, right? But this is what hit me yesterday. However much we spent... If I send that money to my cousin back home in Liberia right now, that's food for a month. Wealth is relative. So you might not relate to the billionaires, but all of us can spend better to help more. And the thing is, we are wealthy too. And that's hard for us to sometimes hold on to. I'm a poor college student. We are wealthy too. If we have food, if we have water, if we have shelter, if we have access to health care, if we have access to safety, we are plenty wealthy. And now I'm going to prove how wealthy we are. Every single year, 9 million people die from preventable diseases related to hunger. 9 million. That's more than AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. And we'd consider all those big problems. More people die from hunger than those three combined. I think that was 10 seconds. A child dies from hunger every 10 seconds. Nearly half of the deaths around the world of kids under five is from hunger. Right now in the world, 
822 million. That's like America times two and a half, I think, right? 822 million people are suffering from malnourishment. As we see these billionaires and these corporations take over, we're seeing food insecurity. We're seeing the weather and climate change affecting. We have brothers and sisters in Zimbabwe right now, brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters, who will starve in the months ahead. They will starve because they didn't get enough rain. And because the business people, how we operate in our capitalistic mindset is they're going to hike up the prices to make a good business and they can't afford it, so they will starve. One in nine. I want you to do me a favor. Look across the row and count nine people. One in nine people in the world right now will go to bed tonight hungry. We are wealthy beyond what we can imagine. And that's before we even get to water. Unsafe water. Unsafe water every single year leads to 1.2 million deaths. So if Harrisburg's what, 50,000? Who wants to do the quick math? Is that about 24, 22 times Harrisburg? Die every year just from having unsafe water. In low-income countries, that's 6% of all their deaths every year. So if you're looking at the budget, if you're looking at the population, 6% of your population is going to die every year from unsafe water. In the world, we did one in nine go to bed hungry. One in four do not have access to safe drinking water. One in four. And then 6% of all the world can't even dream of an improved water source. If we have food, if we have shelter, if we have water, if we have access to healthcare safety, we are wealthier than most of the world. We are wealthier beyond what we can imagine. We are the wealthiest people to have ever existed. Years ago, we took our kids on a mission trip to Haiti, and it was interesting. Because one of the things I was excited about, you know, there's a lot of people who write these, like, think pieces on, on mission trips, and I get it, right? A lot of people go on Christian mission trips, and they do more harm than good. But there are people doing a lot of good. And, and the group we went to was doing a lot of good. But one of the things that was interesting is to watch our kids interact. So think about water. I watched one of our kids hear the story and then see people every single day. The kids would get up before school, they would get a gallon, they would go down to the river, and they would bring water back. Because that was their only access to clean water. Because if you didn't have that water, what you relied on was in your village, there was a trough. And the trough is it's interesting because if you're at the beginning of the trough, you're good. Right? So like, if the trough begins at my house, I'm good. But by the time it gets to Luke, I've used it. By the time it gets to Miss Pat, Luke's used it, and I've used it. By the time it gets to Chad, Luke used it, I've used it, Miss Pat's used it, Chad's used it. And this is how people operated every single day. So if you live at the back end of the trough, it had to go through all these houses before you got water. And I saw one of our kids come to me with tears in his eyes. He says, Pastor Hank, I thought I was poor. I thought I was poor. And it forever changes perspective in what poverty really looks like. We are richer than we can ever imagine if we just have the basics of life. Yet we live in a world where rich people keep getting richer at the expense of poor people. And it's happening on our watch. So the question becomes is, we know better, but do we actually act better? 
And to me, that's where the danger of wealth begins for us. We live in danger because we have access and it's made us love convenience and it's made us complacent and it's not only maybe not hurting us directly, but it's hurting so many people in our world. And how we act better is to realize that what James is saying is that if we live for money, we will fade away. But if we take a step back and go back to our Jesus who says, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. If we go back to our Jesus who says, I will provide for you, but I want you to serve me and not money. If we go back to our Jesus and we realize that, yes, we have access, but are we committed to be givers? That, yes, we love convenience. Are we willing to give even if it's inconvenient to us? That, yes, it's easy to be complacent, but are we willing to bless, to help even a little? And I think that's the danger of wealth for all of us, is to take a step back and not just say, God, thank you for blessing me, but saying, God, how has what you've blessed me with, how can I use that to bless others? Because that's the work for all of us. That's the call for all of us. If we truly belong to God and belong to each other, then everything God's blessed us with should be resourcing the kingdom. So it's not just enough to know that this world needs better food and, and cleaner water. What are we doing about it? And if that's too big, right? Like I'm African, so you got to eat the elephant a little bite at a time, right? If that's too big to think about, then you say, God, in my purview, on my street, on my block, in my neighborhood, what is the need here that I can meet now? What is my bite of the elephant? I can't solve clean water by myself. But I can make sure kids on my block have a safe place to play. I can make sure kids in my neighborhood have a safe place to play outside. I can make sure they have a good school that they go to. I can make sure they have clean water. I can make sure they have a house to sleep in. There's little that we all can do. Because we got to stop just saying we belong to God and each other, right? James wants you not just to say it, but to live it too. To live it too. And if you do an honest assessment of your life, how is my life showing that I belong to you? How? How does my job, my wealth, right, my gifts, my skills, my abilities, my family, my church, how is all of those showing that we belong to God but also each other? Because that's the message that John, who is Jesus' best friend, reminds us, right? He says, like, God has gifted you so that you can actually be a gift. In 1 John 3, 16 to 18, he says this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our sisters and brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Micah, who complained about the rich getting richer, right? He, he has this great scene in Micah 6 where, where God puts his people on trial. And I like to return to Micah 6. And I'm like, if God puts me on trial, do I pass? Because God says, I want y'all to look at the hills and the mountains and the trees. They've been around forever. They can see I've been faithful. They can see I've been good. I have led you out of slavery in Egypt. I have brought you to the promised land. I've sent you leaders like Miriam and Moses to lead you. I've always been on your side but you've always fell short. And what do I want from you? 
I have shown you, O mortal, O person, what is good and what do I require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We have been called by God to bring justice and peace. If this world does not know justice, the spirit is working, are you? If this world does not know peace, the spirit is working, are you? If this world is struggling for basics like food and water and shelter, there's plenty of people who are in the field working for this. Are you? It's not enough to know better. Are we doing better? We have been chosen by God. And I think a lot of times we hold on to that for personal blessing. We've been chosen by God. He saved me. Great. We've been chosen by God. He blesses me. Great. We've been chosen by God. He gifted me. Great. But now as we leave today, hold on to the fact that you've been chosen by God to see darkness and be light, to see brokenness and bring healing, to see the world as not as it should be and to make it possible to be what God dreams it to be. You have been chosen to show the love of God to people who need it the most. You have been chosen and blessed and gifted so the work becomes, as we leave today, am I committed to be a blessing because I've been blessed, a gift because I've been gifted? I have been chosen, and with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do God's work. There's much suffering in the world, but praise God for the Spirit. And today I want to say, praise God for you, the church. Because together, together, we can make on earth as it is in heaven possible. Amen? I'd like to welcome up the worship team. We're going to end our service with our final song. As we sing this song, I'd like to invite any of the pastors in the room as well. We'd love to pray for you. Maybe it's something in the service that you want to respond to, or maybe it's an idea that's burgling in your head to say, this is how I think God might be calling me to help, or maybe it's anything you've got going on. We'd love to pray for you as well. But as we sing this song together, may we be reminded that God has chosen us for a great work, that yes, there's great need, but thank God we can be a great church in the spirit. Let's stand and sing together.
lessons at least for me that I try to pass on to my daughters is that you know nothing matters more than yes Jesus first and that they're Johnson's number two gotta get that right right but what I'm trying to pass on to them is this idea that God has called us to be a light in this world and that in their little way they can be lights and it's fun to see them live that out you know my my youngest daughter um had a, a situation where, you know, someone was like trying to bully her, but she's really the bully. So the prayer is for her not to be the bully. Um, so we had to like redirect her and be like, don't punch him, like lead, you know, do something productive. And it's been fun to see her grow in that, right? It's been fun to see like at the end of the day, like her teacher tells me she runs the class. Like they come to her for permission to do stuff. I'm like, yes, go you. And my older daughter is this beautiful creative spirit. And it's been fun to see her 
take hold of not just her creativity, but it's fun to see her watch that her, her voice matters, right? That, 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 that what, like her gifts not only matter, but like what she has to say matters. And I thought about the two of them as I think about this idea that God's chosen us, right? Like there's nothing that's going to be worth more than the love that lets us carry our name. And I'm not just quoting Mumford and Sons, a great line. But there's nothing that's going to mean more than the fact that we identify as being God's family. To call ourselves Christian and Christ one is to say that the name of Jesus matters more. And my prayer for us is that we hold on to this idea that we've been chosen to shine light in the darkness. We've been chosen to bring healing to the broken. We've been chosen to go into this world and not complain about the world being broken and not as it should be, but to say, God, how can I help? That we've all been blessed to be a blessing, gifted to be a gift. So now as we leave this morning or this afternoon, know that you've been chosen. And I pray that you humbly surrender to God, that God uses your gifts for his glory in the kingdom. Our Father, our God, we thank you so much for the blessing of your son, Jesus Christ for the blessing of him not only being our Lord and Savior, but the one who stands before the Father on our behalf. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your model and your example, for teaching us how to live and love to follow God. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you live inside all of us who believe. We thank you that you're transforming us, that you're guiding us, that you're leading us, that you're drawing us back to you, but you're also drawing us to each other. And Father God, who meets the people where they are, we pray now that we can step up to the plate, We pray now that we can honor the fact that you've chosen us. And as we leave this week, we challenge ourselves to go into our homes, our streets, our neighborhoods, and to not just eat the elephant one bite at a time, but to say, God, who are you calling me to that I can go and be a light? Who are you calling me to that I can show a little bit of healing? Who are you calling me to that through the power of the Holy Spirit, with Jesus in my eyes, that I can make on earth as it is in heaven? God, you have chosen us. Let us walk in your love. Let us walk with your grace. Let us show what that love and grace looks like to the world around us. Lord, help us as we go. Strengthen us as we are. And empower us to do your will. In your holy and precious name, Lord, we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week. And no, I'm running to